Hello and welcome to the Wheel of Time Rewind Podcast. I am your host, Dylan Stoll, and I'm joined as always, or should I say not as always, but I'm joined again by my friend, Michael Whitford. Hello, long time, no talk. Yeah, welcome back, welcome back. So we did get some emails to talk with uh, with you guys about, but we have way too much to talk about for episode eight here. So we're going to dive right in and start talking about episode eight, Eye of the World. Before we do that, though, just throwing out the reminders that if you would like to get in contact with us through email, you can do so at willoftimerewind at gmail.com. Or if you're on Instagram and Twitter, you can get at us there at W-O-T Rewind. And then <clears throat> next episode, we're going to kind of take a look at the season as a whole. And so we'd appreciate some feedback on that. Maybe ranking your episodes from least favorite to favorite or favorite to least favorite, however you'd like to do so. Uh, be fun to do a little comparing there and discussion about that. Yeah, that'll be a fun little project, and I'm looking forward to doing that. So let us dive in for this episode here. Episode 8, the season 1 finale, The Eye of the World. So The Eye of the World that never showed up. Well, we are coming back at this after having watched the episode again. And I just want to come right out and start this off by saying, while I do not like this episode nearly as much as the last couple and the rest of the season, to be frank, it is better on the second watch once you are less in shock about all the changes, once you know kind of what to expect, it is better than when I first viewed it. Did you have that I same reaction, that. Mike? Yeah. Yeah, I felt the same way. The second time was definitely more enjoyable uh, at least less jarring and with Rafi coming out and a few other people coming out and explaining some of the changes as well you start to realize why some of those things happened and it it's a little more acceptable but let's hop in here and start talking about this episode should we explain here that we are going to be not going scene by scene because otherwise it's just going to be back and forth between Faldara and the Blight. We're kind of kind of tackle Faldara and the Blight. We'll go back and forth a little bit, but we're pretty much going to try to chunk out big chunks of the events that happen to kind of keep this a little streamlined. I think when we were talking, both of us felt like most of the big... Uh, issues we had with this episode happened towards the end of it so we'll kind of try to try to go through point out the positives and then we'll get into some of the stuff that we had some issues with but just to give everyone a little heads up on how we're going to do this yeah a little roadmap to how the podcast is going to go so let's start off here with the cold open scene this is talking cool. about yeah i like this scene all in all i thought it was really cool to get a peek at the age of legends get to see mm -hmm. Luz there in telemon um and of course he's not alone there he's having a little chit chat with latropose de kume so tomerlin seat yes apparently the tomerlin seat so <clears throat> let's first of all talk about the scene here first of all it's in the old tongue which mm -hmm. i really enjoyed that being in the old tongue i thought that was a nice little yeah. twist on it it was really cool to actually like hear the old tongue being spoken on the show. Oh, yeah. But again, I know like I had mentioned on the Instant Reaction podcast, this could kind of like catch you off guard if you really weren't anticipating it because it is kind of just the first thing you see is another language. Um, so my first big takeaway of this is that this does not look like a war ravaged city. And so my question for you, Mike, was... Are they making a separation between the breaking of the world and the war of power? Where, you know, Luther and Telamon was the general of the war of power. And so his strike at the Dark One's prison wasn't because he was a proud, arrogant man, because he could take on the world and do everything. It was because he had no other choice than to try to do this. It was almost an act of desperation to try to win this war of power which was the war with the Forsaken coming against the forces of the light, the Trollocs, Dreadlords, all sorts of nasties going on there. 
And when we see the city, we see the flying cars, we see the shining city there. It looks does not. Prosperous. Yeah, it looks very prosperous, like the Age of Legends was, but it doesn't really seem like a war time. Well, I hope we get in some of the future seasons here, we get some more from maybe the Forsaken and some flashbacks that help us to understand that maybe the Dark Ones touch that the dragon reborn uh talks about in this scene is more like on how people would changing their purposes and maybe showing other cities like being things being sabotaged and other negative things happening so that way we start to understand like this was bad maybe this city was the last bastion of like where everything was compiled all the libraries all this stuff there wasn't war here because they had been able to hold out so far but they knew it was only a matter of time just something more to give us the urgency in this action because just looking outside it's like wait why are you doing this you right. know and so i could see where in the given situation that we see on screen here why it would seem arrogant to go after the dark one mm-hmm. because there's no need to but the reality of the situation is is that it was a last act to try to win the war for the light because the light was actually losing the war of the power to mm. the shadow until Luther and Telamon went out there and with his hundred companions to try to take on the dark one and seal him back in the boar. But again, I just want to jump into some of the stuff that I've mentioned here. Luther and Telamon being referred to as the dragon reborn. Again, don't like that at all. And then Latropose Decume or being called the Tomerlin Sea, the Watcher of the Flame, giving her additional titles that, again, were never hers to begin with, and taking away from Luz Theron a little bit there, even more, because it seems like they really want to hammer home the point there that it's this is Luz Theron's, th- Luz Theron's fault that the Dark One is uh, is escaping. Yeah, that that didn't sit well with me. I do think they probably tried to do the Tomerlin seat to also show this equality of power. Like, you had the dragon, but then you also had this Tomerlin seat who was the head of the female Aes Sedai. That's kind of how it was painted to me as I like was watching. And to a casual viewer, that might be what they're trying to go for here is that there was inequality in power. Doesn't quite match with what they've said before about the dragon being able to be male or female. It It just... It's, it's show canon is what it is. Like, yeah, it's not what it should be, but it's it is what it is. Um, so the fine. the last the outfits ba- are cool, and I just wanted to sorry, I wanted to point this out. Did you notice the ring? That's what I was going to say. Yes, Lewis Theron's fingers. Really do you know neat. what that ring is called? Is it's, it's the Tomerlin ring? Is what it's oh. called because that was one of the things that uh, Lewis Theron was capable of doing is that's basically like uh, I forget if it was a Turangrial or an Angrial or something like that, but it was something that he had that he could use there. And like you said, we do see this later. So it makes me kind of mm-hmm. wonder what went down at the eye of the world the first time when Luce Theron was there. Uh, oh, but I was also wanted that. to point out here that you see no Elena. And I was really hoping that we would get to see this mystical woman that Luz Theron is always talking about because, you know, he's he's clearly deeply saddened by by her. I'm sure we'll see her in the second episode and as we start to see more of the memories come yeah, back. Yeah, I'm excited about that part if they stick with it. Me too, and I think they will. I think they will because it'll definitely give some good explanation of things. Okay, so why don't we go Blight? Yeah. Because we get to, I think up until we get to the uh, Eye of the World part, Boar, whatever, and then we'll kind of go and explain Faldar up to that point, and then maybe go back and forth there. Sound yeah, good? sounds good. Let's do it. Okay, so the Blight. Um, it still seems cool, you know, very uh, empty still. We get a lot of noises, like things are rustling around. I hadn't, that was probably my biggest issue with just that setting is that as with many places it felt very empty and i know you'll talk later about faldar and tarwin's gap uh, with some of the numbers there but it just felt very empty it would have been neat to see a creature um 
I thought the seeing the kid like cor- like completely covered and corrupted by the blight that was pretty cool. Yeah, I like that. Nice nice explanation of the power and stuff there, but I would have been like if I was there what co- like the blight causes like him sleeping or what in the blight could cause this and if it Moraine had just said like oh, you know, there's creatures here that will devour his- us. And uh, but don't worry, like I put out some wards or protections to keep them away or to warn us. That would have been kind of neat. But just nothing, just foolish boys like you. <laughs> right. Um, so, but yeah. Yeah, so I was going to say that was one of my biggest uh, gripes about the blight here was that we hear Moraine tell Rand, you know, don't touch anything because everything is so dangerous here if you touch it. Meanwhile, the entire time, yeah, 30 seconds later or less, they're brushing vines out of the way, leaning up against trees to take a nap, laying on the ground. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. the entire thing was a little ridiculous and just really contradicted what they had just stated previously about the blight being dangerous and not to touch anything there. But then we get Rand's dream. It was a cool scene. Yeah, where you see... Ishamael, because if you look and pause it, that's who it's credited as, as Ishamael or mm-hmm. the man. And <laughs> so Ishamael is one of the Forsaken. So not necessarily the Dark One himself, but really know. high up there. Yeah, we don't necessarily know that as a show watcher. And who knows, maybe in the show, Ishamael is the Dark One. Well, and Moraine and Rand don't know that. Very true as well, yeah. Which mirrors what happened in the book. Yes, it actually really does quite nicely. But we see Ishamael basically shove a knife through Moraine's mouth, which, talk about a jarring scene. Like, that oh, yeah. caught me off Definitely guard. Shocking. I was like, whoa. Um, but then he has this little chat with Rand where he's like, ooh, a heron-marked blade. Where did you get that? And then Rand is like, this is a dream. This is a dream. So since it's a dream, let me wake myself up by stabbing myself through the chest with the sword. Yeah, that's seriously what it was. But it was I thought that was really cool in a great way. Like, I deny you. Yeah, I deny you. (laughs) So it was funny. And then you had almost like a repeat of what just happened. And I was like, oh, this it would have been kind of cool if they did like a Groundhog's Day thing just for. Maybe a scene or two, like, she, she like, goes and says the same exact thing. Then all of a sudden, again, sword goes through. And then he's just like, you can't escape me that easily, Louis Theron. You should know that. And then yeah. Rand just, like, yells. And then all of a sudden he gets woken up by Moraine or something. That would have yeah. been pretty That would have really been cool, sweet. But, but either, either way, way, I thought this part was pretty nice. I liked this part here. Yeah. Uh, we also get a glimpse at Melkir, which, you know, is the nation where Lan is from. Yeah. Um, where you have the seven towers of Melkir there that were used to kind of watch the blight. And again, this is like a nice little marker because like if you're reading through the book and it gets to the eye of the world part, they use Melkir as a marker trying to find the eye of the world about like how much farther they have to go there. And so again, it was just nice little exposition there showing you, you know, exactly how far they have gone in the, in the blight area here. And then they find the Trollic armies rushing down on the outskirts of the Blight. You see that had them, had them heading towards Tarwin's Gap. And when we see this, Moraine is basically telling Rand, you know, don't worry about them. This is what we need to do. You know, we need to stay focused on <laughs> the mission at hand. So what were your thoughts on, on that part? So I just, you know, going forward to the end of the episode, her saying that by defeating the Dark One, we'll defeat this army kind of thing. No, that's not really the case. And honestly, him, like them, I'm putting air quotes here, defeating the Dark One, uh, like they think they do at the end, doesn't really seem to have any impact outside of what happens to Moraine. What happens to Moraine, and we'll talk about some other impacts later on such as what was down below them. Well, yes, yes, yeah, obviously seal, that. Basically but I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's for a second I thought I've when I was watching this initially I was like, "Oh, these are going to be kind of linked, like their battle mm. and the battle here." And I, yeah. I was like that's going to be pretty cool, but it does not it's not that way at all. They're very and, two very separate battles in the show here. Mm-hmm. And I wish they had been a little bit more linked, like 
maybe another force started showing up and then all of a sudden like when the the encounter between rand and ishamiel resolves itself in the blade like all of a sudden they scatter because that's really what happens in the book too like they don't kill every single trollic in the book the trollocs see what's happening and are like we're getting out of here let's run away so but yeah i agree it would have been better if they lined it up or even if they lined up the part where um, the circle takes out the army there, if that lined up more with Rand blasting a Shamael, that would have been a little bit better just for the the uh, you know the lining up of it. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, know. it would have been neat if it yeah it mirrored itself yes, yes. in a way. Uh, but then we get them going, continuing through the blight, and they get to uh, they get to the eye of the world. Eye of the world again. Not sure. Uh, oh well, did kind of skip a piece, but the set there was cool. It looked really neat. Honestly, it made me feel like this was a building or someplace that where I said I would have met during the Age of Legends. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was kind of cool. Maybe has some significance to that. Uh, but right before that, we had after the dream. Rand asking Maureen about what her plan was because oh yeah yeah of course had what? asked had asked it's okay it's not a big deal had asked uh, him about his plan you always had a plan Louis Theron I don't though <laughs> uh, and I did like the going back again to the dream Ishamiel kind of making fun of him for thinking that Tam was his father and we'll see more of that hopefully explanation later on but uh, <laughs> we have. Moraine basically handing him a Terangriel and a Saangriel. Saangriel, sorry. Yes. A Saangriel. In the books, this would have been a Taangriel. Anyway. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) What it though? Uh, uh, So, okay, I I have a question. An Angriel, sorry. An Angriel. Yeah. I, my thing with this item was that, like, it's fine if they want to combine items, whatever. It seemed like how she was explaining it this was the eye of the world and how that was explained right exactly like, exactly that's what i wanted not, to bring up to you is it she brought up that it was the combined power of like thousands of male channelers like purified or whatever she, i don't know if she even said purified but like thousands of male channelers put every drop of the power that they had into this Sa'angriel, which is what the Eye of the World was. It was Mm -hmm. a pool of pure Sidene that was not tainted by the Dark One's touch because all these male channelers poured all of their power into it. Yep, and the female uh, Sidai that were with them, they cleansed it as they were like pouring it out into it. And so... It was this whole big deal, which is, this is what the Eye of the World is, so that the dragon can, you know, use all this. But, yeah, the the way she described it made me wonder, is this the little fat man Angriol that we see Rand using a lot in the show? Or is this a Chodin call that uses, you know, the, the male side of the linked... Um, I don't know. The linked thing there. You know what I'm talking about, though, right? Yeah, like the, the, the giant biggest... One. Saw Angriel, right? Yeah, the, the biggest, biggest Saw Angriel ever made. It'll be interesting to see how they go about if they incorporate those or if they're just trying to take all those things and put it into one item. I don't know. Um, and it just leads me to wonder one, how did she get a hold of this? Right. It would be kind of cool if we got a little bit of backstory with that. And like you said, if they're going to introduce any other artifacts that Ran used in the show. Don't know. Uh, I just so the other bit I wanted to mention with this is that she brought something that only a male Chandler can use. Now I wonder if that's because she might have had one that a female Chandler could use on her as well. Mm. And if she, well, did, she did, why didn't she use why it during Ashamael? But like, if she yeah. thought Egwene was the dragon, which she all but confirms through her silence when Rand was talking to her about this, like, yeah. why would she have this with her? If she thought Egwene was a dragon, I liked I liked that scene though where Rand was like, "You thought it was Egwene, didn't you?" And then when she was silent, so did I. So did I. Like, yeah. I, I I thought that was really cool. Um, I really like that that exchange. But you're right. Why would she have this 
just for the male and not something for the female, and then why wouldn't she use it? I don't know. The other thing I thought about is like if they talked about how um, this the soul of the dragon could be male, but maybe it's still in a female's body or something, mm. and maybe Egwene would use Sidene or whatever, um, and not Sidar. But I also don't know, outside of bonus material, how strict they're being with the separation of Sidene and Sidar. Because, I mean, they never really call it Sidene in the show, do they? Like, outside of bonus mm. material? Hmm. I'm trying to think. I don't remember. I'll I'll have to pay attention and look for that when I rewatch it. Same. But I did same. want to bring up um, when Rand was like, "You taught her, and then like, could you teach me?" And she like all but avoids. Yeah. Answering yeah. that. She's like, and, "Oh, I don't want to drive you closer to madness. Not that you know it'd be the same as teaching a fish to swim to fly or a bird to swim." Which is how they describe it in the books. Yes. So, and I, don't I mean, know. I'm kind of getting a little ahead, but I want to talk to you also about when Rand is in the uh, the dream world there with, or the vision, I guess you can call it, with Ashamael, and he's trying to coach him basically how to get it, get the source, and he's like, oh, you know, open yourself up, don't fight it, and every single time in the books we hear Rand getting ready to channel. We hear him talking about how he has to wrestle Sidene on to get under his control. And he, it is a fight to get into it with, to get the source for him. Whereas the women in the sh- in the books, they all like open like a flower bud and like accept it and like surrender to it. Whereas Rand's like, if I surrender to Sidene, it will kill me. I need to fight this mm. thing and gain control of it. So just the way they described grasping onto the source for a male Chandler in the show here was very, very different from what it was before. But we got off track, jumping back to the eye of the world. I too actually really liked the architecture. I thought that it looked like a really cool set. Um, It looked like it was of something of import because like you see the bottom has this giant disc that has the symbol of uh, the old school Aes Sedai on there with the female half and the male half, the flame of Tarvalon and the dragon's fang joined together to form that yin-yang symbol that they use for Aes Sedai. Yeah, the Colindor. Or not Colindor. The, the Quendiar. Quendiar, thank you. <laughs> Again, those the, pronunciations from the book reading only are coming back to haunt you. I <laughs> know. Uh, the Quendiar um, disc. And it makes me wonder if they're going to make it so... The Quendiar discs are places instead of just like discs, because in I the had book it was described almost thought. like plates, you know, like and I they were transportable like as well. Yeah, like you in the books, like they grab the seals to the Dark One's prison, which are made of Quendiar, and like they'll put them in like their pocket or whatever and bring that with them. Whereas here, it looks to me like that's what the Eye of the World is here: is that it's a seal on the Dark One's prison. Not necessarily the final seal or anything like that, but there are six others that are not broken that we are aware of, at least. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so we get we get uh, to the bottom here. We see the Aes Sedai symbol, the yin yang, black and white. Rand says he's been there before. He sees like an uh, image of Louis Theron Telamon and the Dark One, quote unquote, or Shamiel fighting, talking, talking, staring at each other. Yeah, not quite sure there what's going on, but it's okay. So do we just want to finish off this aspect of the show? Yeah, let's just keep going. Okay. Uh, And then Rand touches the symbol, and he enters, I've been here before, I know this, and then he goes into this, like, dream. Yeah. Uh, He's sucked in there from Ishamayel, trying to tempt him, as we see in this sequence where he's back in the two rivers suddenly. Not sure why he's there. He sees Egwene and Joya, apparently his daughter. It's a very cute, like, very cute scene. Honestly, like, you could definitely picture this happening to Rand. And this is something, like, I know, Dylan, you talked about in your instant reaction that was explained in the books during Egwene's initiation into the White Tower. One of the things that she would be giving up. The futures, right. the possible futures she'd be giving up. 
and um, it it make it fits it fits well here with trying to tempt him and like and that's what Ashamiel's trying to do. He's trying to get Rand to see this could be a possibility for you. You just have to make it a possibility. Right. Use the power to make this thing happen. What were your thoughts? So my thoughts were. Uh, first of all, like you said, this is a throwback to book readers who will recognize this scene from Egwene's accepted testing. And then Mike and I had a little discussion before we started recording here about this scene and how we actually felt this scene fit better with being a dream for Rand and something he would want as opposed to Egwene and something she would want. Because like Rand says at the very end, this is what I want, this is not what she wants, and I love her too much to basically to force her to give up her dreams. So I thought all in all, this scene was nice because you see Ishamael basically trying to be the the father of lies that, you know, Baal Zaman was like known for being basically, mm-hmm. and trying to tempt Rand to make joy a real you know like she's already real you just have to reach out and you know grab that power to make her even more real just believe it in yourself you know she's you can make this life however you want to do it and so i thought that this whole scene in general with Rand being tempted by shamayel was very interesting um i i actually liked this part of the episode so i'll give a uh, give props to the actor who played shamayel i liked him oh, as great job as an actor there um, i also thought it was very interesting though going to the flip side of this about what's happening outside here because you have a um, we have moraine try to attack shamayel and you see like cool these sequence. like shards cool. of glass basically coming yeah. towards his neck and he's just like nope that's not happening puts what looks like a shield on moraine mm. so i think we're in agreement now that yeah. moraine is shielded as opposed to stilled but puts don't a believe shield, she's stilled. yeah puts a shield on her and then flings her like one powers like that she was her flows that she was using to strike at him. And sucked back in. Right her. back at her. And you see the reaction of pain. You're like, Ugh. And meanwhile, and Shamael does that little like twist thing, which I was telling Mike, really looks like if you like had a rope and you're like tying it around a metal thing, which if you think about the one power being like threads and weaving, it's winding it around and tying off the the flow there. So it looks more to us like Moraine was shielded and had that shield tied off. But what I wanted to talk about, and before I have you jump in here, Mike, was how Moraine is like, you think I came here unprepared? And it holds the knife up to Rand's throat, drawing blood the entire time Ishamayel is just sitting there, smiling, doing nothing. And I'm just like, you just demonstrated how powerful you are. By, you know, shielding this woman and tying it or tying it off, you're going to let her just kill the dragon reborn there when you're trying to convert him to the dark? I don't no. think so. Um, so yeah, that was my my whole thing there. I was like, this is there's no way Yashamai would just like stand there and let that happen. Yeah, that the knife to the throat thing seemed more like him just like, okay, whatever, you can have that up to his neck. It doesn't matter to me. Um, it would have been funny if he if he had been like alive or dead. He's mine. Oh, I know. I was waiting been, for that because another name for the been, dark one is the Lord of the Grave. So mm-hmm. he was like, "I can have you willingly alive, or I will take you when you're dead." Yeah. So that would have been a pretty cool scene if they did that, or a little cool piece of dialogue they had there. But something I want to bring up as well is we see Rand start channeling into the Sa'angriol that Moraine gave him. And then basically holding it out like a flashlight. <laughs> Not really sure what he was doing because we don't really see anything. It was almost like a... Kind of reminded me a little bit of like in Dragon Ball Z when Goku's like, okay. Kamehameha! Ha! And, and then he shoots it. The yeah, he's like holding it out there and he's just like, you're... Boom! And I'm just like, okay, so again, Ashamayel just stands there looking at it. But I wanted to bring this up to you. Did you notice the smirk Ashamayel had when oh, Rand yeah. blasted him? 
he I think he wanted Rand to blast him there to break the seal on the prison. Which is what happened, correct? Which is what happened, yeah. Yeah. And as you saw later on in Faldara with Pad and Fane's monologue that this is just the beginning, uh, you know, I think that really is kind of what we got there with Ishamiel. Uh, we didn't talk about, in the dream, Rand realizing that this really was his dream for him and Egwene, but mm-hmm. not Egwene's dream. And so he could never take her possible future away from her. Right. And I thought that was that was such a great line. And uh, Chris Allen, who sent that email to us, I know we're going to talk more about that next episode, Chris, but I, I wanted to point this part out that, like you said, it, it just fit better. This fit better being Rand's dream rather than Egwene's dream in the books. Because Egwene never really wanted this. Uh, she always dreamed of adventure. I mean, there was probably a small part of her that wanted it, but, you know. Once she got a taste part. for adventure, she didn't want it yeah. anymore. I feel like she did want it when she was only living in the Two Rivers, when mm-hmm. she thought she would be the wisdom there, and she'd grow up to marry Rand, and they'd have kids, and all that stuff there. But, yeah, I, I agree. I thought it was really nice. And I also wonder if, like, despite Rand and Egwene, you know, both professing their love to each other all season long, if this might be the catalyst for Rand to say, you know what, Egwene, I'm not going to hold you back. You know, I'm not going to, you know, like make you dwell on our relationship here. I agree with you, Dylan. Um, it does feel like this is Rand deciding, like, you know, our futures are going to be separate. I still love her. Like she had said, she says to Perrin and Faldara when we get back there in just a moment. Um he still loves her, but he knows that their futures aren't together. And I think she's going to realize that as well. And right. it's going to be, hopefully, it's a clean break. And it's not some dragged out thing for TV audiences. You know, because Rand's going to have other love interests and she's going to have other love interests. Right. And I think it's also could be like the them marching towards a point where they realize they still love each other but not romantic love. They love each other kind of like as best friends and stuff. And so that might be where this is marching towards there. But then we also have to finish off this part here with Rand and Moraine. Rand basically saying, Moraine, tell everyone I'm dead. You owe me this. I'm out of here. And so if Moraine realizes what she did, that this is not the last battle, how is she going to just let the dragon reborn walk away? I think she's in shock. So I could kind of get this. She's in shock. Like, she can't feel... Like, she can see the source. She, she thinks she's she might be stilled. Who knows what. Um, and she's just like, uh, okay. Like, very uncharacteristic. Again, like we talked about, and like, uh, we've read through some things with, like, Rafi. The reason they did this is because they want to give her an arc and something to work for in season two. Whereas in the books, in... The second book, and really even, I guess, in the third book. Moraine's not well, too no. important in the, the second, second book. book. She's important yeah. in the third book, but in the second, second book, book, Moraine's like there for maybe five chapters or however long in the very beginning until they leave Valdara. Yeah. And then she disappears. And so they're going to, because this is a show and she's one of the main characters, they're going to focus on her a lot, which made me think of a lot of implications further on in different storylines she's in where she may or may not spear or die and like how are they going to address that but we could talk about that if and when we get an, there in another episode um i do think it's interesting that it he kind of looks like he's looking off towards the blight or more towards maybe the waste not quite sure so yes we'll talk about theories there afterwards and i have heard some that i want to bring forward maybe here. we save those for another episode too okay <laughs> we okay. do a whole theories for season two episode i think that'd be good then we have Land show up comforting Moraine. Moraine saying she can't channel. But, so I want to point out here, did you notice she never says that she's stilled? She never says she's shielded. Yes. She just says, I can't touch the source. Yes. So she kind of like kept and it vague. She started to say something, stopped herself, and then said something differently. And so I was kind of listening more intently on this wash through, and that really caught my attention because it, it does lead more lie. towards, yeah, how she can't lie still. It's still ingrained in her. She's still bound by the one power. So I'm interested to see where this leads. Okay. 
Nah, me too, but now over to Faldara. And so we have it, the scenes in Faldara here. I'm um, going to go through kind of quickly because the first part, in my opinion, is pretty cut and dry. You get Egwene and Perrin, a nice cute friend moment kind of making up and kind of realizing like they're just friends. Saw some fun fan, fan theories where they think that maybe it was Perrin's wife that wanted Egwene. Um, I saw some <laughs> saying that they think it's Perrin who wants Rand. <laughs> well either way that'd be kind of funny or fun interesting love interests i guess who knows maybe they'll make Fiola. yeah who knows boy <laughs> who knows <laughs> but honestly it wouldn't really change my perspective if they did because that character was whatever i do think though that Perrin in this episode and in the last few episodes this season like really out of all Unfortunately, the he's been the weakest. Yes, and I just think they just really haven't given him much development outside of his trauma at the beginning. Man, kind of. I've done like my man dirty. Of, yeah, uh, but the, I mean, we'll talk about the strengths of the whole series. But I, as I've said to you on a couple occasions and earlier today too, the casting has just been phenomenal. Though all these actors and actresses have been really great, outside of maybe uh, Lord Algamar, but. I think that was more the lines he was given than anything else. Yeah, I'm not uh, putting that on him. I'm putting that on the writing for the series. Mm, and the first and last episode. You'll have to share that tidbit maybe at the end. Yes. All right. We cut over to Lan and Nynaeve. Cute scene. Um, Lan gives, like, you're, my, you're a lioness and all this. And it was just very cute. Had a little issue with Nynaeve being like, Moraine has a tell. And like explaining it to Lan, yes. you would think that after Lan being with her for so long, for twenty plus years, he would know this too. He should know but. this, and it just made me it, honestly. I was watching this, and it just made me laugh out loud because I'm like, how ridiculous is this particular thing? And yeah. yes. Anyway, and then we kind of uh, we get Faldara again with. Nynaeve and Egwene trying to listen to the wind. Which Nynaeve says she hasn't been able to do since she channeled, which is which weird. Which I think is really interesting because Egwene can still listen yes. to the wind, though. And she's so channeled I'm not, as well. I'm not sure why they included that. There may be some reason down the road. So my thought, my thought is that it's part of Nynaeve's block. Because she didn't mm. realize she was using the one power when she was listening to the wind. Or, like, it was similar to the One Power enough mm. where she's unable to channel or do things associated with channeling unless she's angry enough. Mm. That's a good point. Uh, and then we get Loyal's return as they go down to the bar to see Min. So before we kind jump of... in here, I want to oh, yeah. talk to you about this here. So we see the gang coming in. Min sees them too. And Min is just like, Aggie, you know, like, you might want to move. You might want to get out of here. So as he, this guy, Aggie, gets up from the bar and starts to leave, he pats Loyal on his chest right where he gets stabbed later on by Pod and Fane. So there's a whole bunch of theories out there going that, like, some kind of protection was put in that spot or, like, something was going on there. Like, who is this guy? And, like... Mm. How what, how is that like? Is that foreshadowing that something's gonna hit there, or was he just putting it there, his hand there, just out of normal, like oh excuse me, pat pat type of situation? That is interesting because I feel like they haven't really done anything without a purpose like that. Yes. Oh, and I'm sorry, I'm gonna go off topic again right here, but. Going back to Moraine and, Le- and Rand, there was a, a very important thing I wanted to bring up. How she's like, you'll channel when you need to. And he's like, but what if I can't? And she's like, you will. When I was a novice and I was having struggles with learning this, it made me think of Elida. Elida. It made it me think of Elida. Definitely call back to her. And so yes. this this was really good for, for me. That was really exciting because it's like, even though you didn't name her. Right. You've, described her exactly. so i do think we're i do think we're going to see her hopefully more than just some eyes that i back in the day she's with Morgase and she's been out of the picture for a long time and then when elaine comes to the tower maybe next season 
we'll get Elida. That would be very interesting. So that's what I'm hoping for as well. So this gave me a lot of hope that Elida will actually still exist. And that would line up really nicely with what ha- should happen with Leandra next season too. Yes, very true. Very true. But let's jump back to Faldara here. Yep. Uh, so we have the bar scene. The bar I mean, Min sees yeah. people burning, which we know is the burnout later from channeling too much and the Trolloc attack from the guys all dying. I don't really have too much else to say on that. So the one thing we that comes up next that I want to talk about is oh, yeah. just Amalisa and Agamar. Mm-hmm. Amalisa basically fades. Yeah. Trying to tell Agamar, oh, you know, stay back. You know, like you're the leader, you're our leader. Don't go out there and risk yourself. And just Agamar being an arrogant jerk the entire time here. Like he's been the entire episode before and here. It just it really makes me disappointed with how they portrayed Agamar. Agreed. I did not like how they they that portrayal of him. I did not think it did his character justice in the books. Not at all. Towards the end, like the last speech we, he got, he kind of gave where he was like, "We're doing this to give everyone else a chance." I like, like that I like, part. That's that's Agamar right, right. there. Right. All he, the rest of this, ignoring his sister and having this her repeat herself like eighteen times, the city or the gap will fall, the gap will fall, the gap. I'm just like, why are are they having her repeat this line repeatedly? Yeah. It just and you're just ignoring her. It just felt so silly. It really didn't fit his character from the books, and it just again makes me disappointed that we're seeing a character who was fairly likable in the books be wasted this way and be someone that we don't like or have no reason to like, um, or don't care about that he gets killed in the in this. Yeah, it's like oh he's dead. All right, cool. Less complaining, less misogyny. We're good. <laughs> we'll say Uno is awesome. Uno, I actually really like. I was like the oh, flame kissing goat. <laughs> oh, make uh, yeah, the goat kissing hides. Yes, yeah. I was like, yes, yes, Uno, yes. Or the flame um, goat kissing hide, yeah. Yeah, I gotta get the actual line there, but I love that. That was classic Uno there. Um, yeah. So <sighs> then we see Agamar start to like round up everybody to go. He's like, oh, we're gonna bring the entire Shinaran army with us, or. I guess everyone that was there at Faldara. And then Amalisa puts out the call for like all women who can even channel a trickle to come to her because she's going to need them. And then puts women guarding the bridges, puts them guarding with bow and arrows on the wall there. And that for everyone who's not from Faldara to get on out of there. And interesting enough, Min is among the little throng that looks like she cut her hair or maybe she just has her hair down instead of being pulled up like she had at the bar but she's among the people leaving faldara while everyone else is you know manning the ballistas gathering bows and arrows and defending the city made me kind of wonder like oh what's going on there like maybe she just well and Egwene might have out. said something to or not Egwene, sorry Moraine may have said something to her as well we don't That's know true. yeah like if anything happens to the city, like, go here. Right. Because she is really an important character, and she has some abilities that they would not want to have lost. Yeah. You like, know? maybe, so there's this whole arc with men in book two and three, rather, as well, where she goes to the White Tower. And maybe so... it's going to happen. I'm, yeah, I'm thinking that she might be heading towards Taller Valen. But, so, the, going back to Faldara again, they keep talking about how... We're, t- we're Faldara, the city that has never fallen. And I was like, that really should not be your name because you know exactly what's going to happen here. Yeah. I like that they lit the torches. No fade will have yep. a shadow to hide in. I wish they had talked a bit more about the shadow traveling, but it's, you know. Yeah, I like that detail as well. I thought that was nice. It was nice. Um, we did skip over that armor scene between... Uh, the sister and... Between Amelisa and Agamar? Amelisa, yeah. Uh, the only thing I have to say on that, it seemed kind of weird that he'd be like, I'm in my own armor, and yeah, then like, she dons... Yeah, I need to dons, wear my own armor. And then she... Yeah, and then she dons the armor. Right. Uh, and so I was like, okay, I feel... I don't... You're going for something here. It didn't quite land with me. Me either. It's fine. Uh, we continue on. 
parents yelling about how, how can we do this the way of the leaf? I can't just watch these people die. And I'm just like, wait, so are you actually a tinker now? Are you practicing the way of the leaf? What's going on, Baron? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, I wish they explained that more than just in a line. Like if he did, that's fine because we know in the books he battled this idea of violence and being a blacksmith and a helper in a community and... He had to find a balance between it, but I just feel like they're butchering his character to the point where I don't even know what he stands for or what he believes anymore, and I don't think he does either right now, so I guess we're all confused. So something else I want to point out about that particular scene there is he asks Loyal, what do I do? How can I, what can I do? I just can't watch my friends die. And mm-hmm. Loyal literally says, if you don't know what to do, you should ask somebody. Well, Parent was just asking you, Loyal, what should he do? <laughs> and I'm just like, okay. It's a little... And then you... Yeah. It is a little on the nose. Uh, and then you go in, you see them chipping away at... Uh, well, you see Uno and the other gentleman Lord chipping Dakota. away. Lord Dakota. Chipping away at the... Uh, Underneath the seat where Agamar yeah. was sitting, there is a little surprise. So... Thanks, surprise. We'll yes. cut to that pretty quickly. They set up all the enforcements. We have all the pe- all the guys, all 19 horsemen, as Dylan counted, going to Tarwin's Gap to help defend. It seemed kind of ridiculous how few. Yeah, so there were. you can literally pause it when it comes up there and you see the horses riding forward and you can count every single one. There's 19 horses and some CGI amount of foot soldiers behind them, so you can't really tell. But it looks, you know, like a very small force. And they're supposed to defend against 10,000 to 20,000 Trollocs. Silly. And not just that, but when they do get to Tarwin's Gap, they man it using crossbows, which are notoriously slow loading. So mm. I was like, why would you and, not just use regular bow and arrows and other oh, like siege weapons or weapons of war? And crossbows don't have nearly as far a range. No, short range, powerful shots, but mm-hmm. short range, long to reload. Maybe they have to yeah. use those to take out the Trollocs with one hit, like it seemed like a lot of them were doing. But yeah. we see this scene here progress pretty much exactly like everyone knew it was going to, with the Trollocs they attacking and just murdering everyone, and Agomar getting a spear right through the middle of his chest. So, so I doubt we'll be seeing waste. him again. And yeah, bye-bye, now, one I of did... the great captains. <laughs> yes. Now, I did have to say, yeah, bye-bye to one of the great captains. Some of the reasoning they had for killing off some of our some of the characters, Rafi had said they can't carry forty five season regulars. But I have an issue with that because you don't like after this book you might see him in season two or after this book in the book series you see him in book two, but then you don't see Agamar again until season or book like seven or no yeah, later than like that really later on yeah like and it could just be 10. like a. It could, it's just like a quick scene like oh like we got word from this we need to move our forces here or name you know, drop him. yeah name drop them like you're obviously not going to show everyone but i mean that doesn't mean you have to kill everyone too and like, i also want to point out like this is the wheel of time we're talking about this is an incredibly large book series with an incredibly large amount mm-hmm. of characters so are you just going to kill everyone that's not convenient to you in the moment Correct. So I just think there it's a big mistake. Very short-sighted. Yeah. Very short-sighted. So I, I'm interested to see what they do with other characters later on. I mean, who else are they going to kill off? I mean, okay, you so know? let's just not get it twisted either, though. Like, yeah. Agomar is nobody's favorite character. But again, yes. the way that they treated him as, like, a throwaway piece of garbage was not nice. Did not no, appreciate it that. It wasn't. Um, and I just feel like his death was was wasteful yeah uh, just very unavoidable when you have uh, events happen in the later on and if you're supposed to build this world then we need to know like you can name drop characters like oh do you know this person in this place because i think that was his main importance is that like in book two when they're chasing after the horn of valier um which we're going to get to here in just a minute they said like we're lord agamar's bannermen and all this right. and that that helps, but like now he's dead. So what are you gonna say? Like, oh, we're from Shinar. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. So before we get to uh, the Horn of Valir, we have Amalisa and the two other Faldaran women that were mm-hmm. 
channelers, or at least had the ability to channel a trickle or more of the one power, standing out there, ready to take on all of the Trollocs. And then Nynaeve and Egwene come, and of course, Nynaeve has to give a little sass when Amelisa is like, oh, I should have known Moraine's two would show up. We're no ones. Yeah, we're no ones but our own. Okay, Nynaeve. Yeah. (laughs) I know that people had issue with the power level here, and I get it, because as we see, like, they link up, and then Amelisa uses their power to decimate all the trolls. god mode. Which, like, I was sitting there like, why didn't they just do this at the beginning? Like, five lives versus all the men of Shinar would have definitely been better. Anyway, um, and I know people have compared it to the scenes earlier in the series where you had all the sisters together fighting off the Dragonsworn. Yeah. And how, you know, if they could do that here, why didn't they do that there? I mean, to be fair... It's a couple in reasons. this situation this budget is a reason yeah. for the cgi to do the lightning also the mm-hmm. power levels of Egwene and nynaeve are yes. much higher than the other i said i there even being wilders like they don't have to know how to channel they just have to be able to be there as a battery yes. and they're not constrained by the oaths either right and even if they were with O's, like they could literally do whatever to Dragon or uh, not Dragon Sworn, uh, to Shadow Spawn. Yeah. They can, because that's within the three O's. Whereas before they're fighting men, they can only defend themselves or like kill, use the power as a weapon in, if their lives are in danger. So, I mean, or their warders are in danger. So really they couldn't like sit there and just smite all of them. I, I mean, that's just, I guess, my justification for it, but. Anyway, you get the. We're just going to stick here with them. You get the two Faldaran women who burn out almost very quickly because they don't have that much. Then you get Egwene and Nynaeve starting to burn out even after they've killed everyone. Like, it looks like Amelise is just like going. She's drunk on the mad. power. Yeah. Just like, oh my gosh, I could do so. I could do anything. She's you know, like, I oh, I hear every rock. I feel every whisper. And like just talking about like how she has so much of the one power in her, she can see, feel, and experience life. And uh, yeah, then you get basically Nynaeve and Egwene are starting to burn up too because she's drawing on them so much. Then it looks like Nynaeve kind of takes Egwene's. So I kind of read it as like Nynaeve pushed Egwene almost out of the circle. Okay. And basically got in front of her so that instead of going through Egwene and then through Nynaeve and then back to Amalisa, and went from Amalisa through Nynaeve back to Amalisa. Okay. That, I guess that can make sense. It's fine. Um, then it looks like Amalisa burns out and then it looks like Nynaeve's dead. But apparently she's not dead because then Egwene heals her and... Then they hug I mean, we, and all is well with the world. Yeah. Kumbaya. Whatever. I mean... You gave them purpose. You gave them their scene of glory here. As I said, it didn't link up with what happened in the blight, and I did not like that. I understand that they want this story to be split between all these characters, and I get that, and that's fine. That being said, I wish they had made them feel more interconnected and not just like this whole huge power thing where these women just took out everything after all the men died. So I just want to come out and I want to say this as well. Like, I feel like, you know, we have the dragon, the dragon reborn, who is supposed to be this big deal. And what has the dragon reborn actually done so far? Nothing that you can see except break a disc. Yeah. Which doesn't have any significance to you. And so like this whole scene is supposed to be Rand's scene where he comes down and uses the one power to decimate the Trolloc armies, saving Agomar, saving the Shinaran army there, saving the Faldaran mm-hmm. city. And so taking this from being something where it's the Dragon Reborn showing you why he's such a big deal to being more of this like split between, you know, the Dragon Reborn shining a flashlight and killing a Forsaken or banishing a Forsaken and these Wilders and a tower cast off wielding the one power to decimate a 10,000 Trolloc army. It's just ridiculous. It, it honestly shows that they have no 
purpose for the Dragon Reborn if they can just do this with Nynaeve and Egwene. And just also the way that they've been portraying men in this series has just been lacking. Like, I really love this series, and part of what I love about this series is just how powerful and awesome so many of these women characters are. But the way they've been treating the men is that they're either all arrogant, they're either all weak, or they just are all pointless. And they have no moments to show you that, yes, we can do good things too. We're not just a waste of space. And I don't know, just it doesn't sit well with me. I agree, Dylan. I think they need to find a better balance. We have these really awesome female characters, and they should be awesome. Let's try to give some of our... Um, male characters time to shine as well and not just make them be evil like matt or arrogant like lewis theron or lord algamar like give them substance yes give them substance and don't just make them like this nameless hero either and like make them a trope but you know give them feel like i think they've done a really nice job of giving our male characters these emotions and stuff and having to deal with that and i think that's really important but also you know, have this interconnected need between these characters. Like, I need you, I need you. And like stepping up and helping each other and making these struggles just connected. Connect that's everything. What, that's what the Wheel of Time is all about. The entire series, one of the biggest themes in the entire series is balance. It's all about balance. And we see that with the symbol of Aes Sedai being half of the female source and half of the male source there. And they work together to have absolute power and unity because without that they could not defeat the dark one at the end of the series they could not do as much as they could do individually as they could do together like they said the best works throughout the entire age of legends weren't just done by men weren't just done by women they were done when they worked together and so that balance is something that's sorely lacking so far and also who's sorely lacking is lan one of our best fighters and probably the guy that's had the most screen time so far has been utterly useless in this episode. He doesn't, doesn't fight a single Trolloc and just or anything tiptoeing the through the blight. But anyway, we're going back to Faldar here. We have um, two female guards, it looks like. And they're like, who's there? And Pat and Fane walks up and, oh, hello. And then all of a sudden two merge all just stat. They're dead. Yeah. Thought that was I thought that was neat. Um, it was kind of weird, like, you know, cause parents helping dig out the horn of Valir, which they, they explain as being this horn that you sound to summon all these heroes from the age of legends to help you fight or not the age of legends, but throughout the ages to help you fight the last battle. Um, but it's for the dragon reborn. Yeah. For so the they're not going to blow it now. They're going to wait until the dragon reborn can get it and then, then blow it yeah. for the last battle. Uh, which is fine. I didn't mind that they moved it here instead of having it at the Eye of the World. They just sped things up because it's set up for Season 2 with Pat and Fane getting it. Do you have an issue here, though? Perrin leaves the room because he thought he saw Pat and Fane. That's so why he chased that was after kind of, him. I feel like they just did this to save on budget of having a fight scene. I don't know. That's what exactly what here. it was. Exactly what it was. It just seemed weird. They should have had the fight scene. Like That would have been cool. But And them just leaving Perrin... That was really weird as well. Like, Perrin walks back in. Loyal's getting stabbed from the ruby tilted dagger, which means he should be instantly dead, yep. by the way. There's um, no recovering from that. Yeah. And apparently, uh, side, I'm siding off the fight here, but the ruby tilted dagger, like, we saw Fane be in the location that the dagger was. So it doesn't, it's not too far off that he could have gotten it. And I guess Rafi had said, like, apparently if you follow him closely, you'll... There's clues there. Well, I'm, I don't know, because like we've been watching fairly closely, and we saw Pot and Fane in Tarvalin. So, okay, he's mm. in the same city as the Ruby Hilted Dagger. However, like, did Moraine and Lan just leave it laying on the floor in the inn there? Like, what gives there? <laughs> Not sure there with that, but it's interesting. I'd be, I'm hopeful that someone maybe found out. I don't know. But anyway. He has it. That's fine. I, I think that's fine. Uh, again, you're merging the two things very quickly. But 
both Uno and uh, Lord Dakota getting stabbed by the merge all one should also mean instant death because right? those blades poisoned blades instantly kill unless all of a sudden when we start season two it's like naive and Egwene show up and then heal them all I don't know if that's what they're gonna do but otherwise know. they should all be dead yeah because like if so. they stick true again that's the key right there is if they stick true to what we know then they all should be dead I think they will kill Lord Dakota because what yeah. I heard is he's supposed to have been Inktar, but there was a conflict with that actor and being able to be available for additional shooting for farther on seasons. So they changed his name in season one here and then killed him oh, off. It's a shame. He's, I thought he was fine. Yeah, was So fine. that would have been cool to have him, but um, he'll be missed. Uh, anywho, yeah, that's fine. But yeah, like Mike just said, I thought it was really strange how... Pot and Fane and the Merdral, who, you know, went through all the trouble of sending the tr- sending the Trollocs to the Two Rivers to get the Emmons Field 5, don't even worry about leaving Perrin there. And just like, oh, we'll have a conversation with you and then leave you there. I thought that was a little weak. Um, we do see Matt again with the the little flash, like I had so mentioned. strange. It's like someone Why who he will would... turn to the shadow and then it shows Matt and walking shows into Tarbalan. Yeah, and that doesn't make sense. I hope they really don't try to make his character evil in this sh- really. in the show. Like, it doesn't make sense to me if they did that. Um, and why is he back in Tarvalon if he's if he's trying to track the dagger? That wouldn't make much sense because the dagger's not no longer there. And, and he would sense that. Yeah, he would sense but. it exactly. And so I really didn't like that part at all. Um, one thing that I did like is I do like the actor for Pot and Fane. I think that he is decent. Oh, he's fabulous. I like him. Um, I really liked how he explained it, where he's like, you know, Rand might be the dragon reborn, but all five of you are important to the pattern. Mm -hmm. And so that goes back to what was talked about in the books, where Matt and Perrin are Tavirin as well, and apparently it's all five of them are Tavirin, Nynaeve included too now. But Matt and Perrin being Tavirin in the books, they were part of like this tripod with Rand, where all of three of them were needed for the last battle to, for the light to have any chance of success. Whereas here, it's all five of them now are going to be needed for the last battle to be a success as Which well. Which is so fine. That's fine with me. I thought it was a cool way to say, like, even though Rance the Dragon Reborn, all of you are matter, all of you are important. Yeah. So overall, had some issues with the episode with how some of that was portrayed. Uh, we have one line, last final scene to get to. Uh, we will talk about theories in another episode here and do our ratings on the episodes. Um, but our last scene we get, which Dylan mentioned in the instant reaction, we Sean called, Chan. we've been calling the Sean Chan. Not quite exactly how I pictured it, but that's that's okay. Uh, you get them on the boat. Dylan, apparently, we didn't see the item, the collar with the with the chain, uh, apparently there is on the wrist though you were saying a gold yeah there's like a gold little like wrist guard and then there's a gold basically chest piece that the Damani were wearing and mm-hmm. so I'm kind of thinking how in the books Elaine discovers you don't need the leash between the yeah. two pieces there and so maybe the Suldam were just wearing wearing it like Elaine discovers later on and the but, mouth guard. And the mouth guard, and ball the gag, whatever you want to call it, the binky. That's still just weird. I don't know what that is needed for. Definitely cool ships, though. I love the rib sails. Loved the appearance of, you know, kind of them and their, like, the paint and stuff on there. Very striking. Um, yeah. It, we Like we've talked about, very odd that they would summon this giant wave to hit the beach where one girl is. Seemed like a waste. Should have really been focused on, like, a town or something else. I know, you know, they don't want to drown Falma, but why do all this when to do what? You know, it just made no sense. It just seemed like you were really just doing that to show the audiences their power, which is fine. But make it make sense. Right, because in the books, what happens is the Sean Chan will come and, like, they don't want to kill people. They see themselves as being the rightful rulers of this land here. So what they'll do is if you swear oaths of fealty to them, they let you go. Like they have no problem doing that. So for them and to summon a giant tidal wave. Yeah, 
they're not going to do that to a girl. Like, what if she could channel? She'd be way more oh. valuable to them. Mm-hmm. And so, like, they're not going to just summon a tidal wave to kill or drown a single little girl like that. It's just overkill. And I think it was done for the shock and awe of it all and just for us as the viewers to be like, oh, damn, who are these people? Yeah. Again, could have done that better. Like, make it a beach full of people. Just do something to make it seem more important than one little girl digging up clams. But that was the end of the final episode of the, or sorry, the eye of the world, the final episode in season one. Overall, the season had its ups and downs. I'm excited to talk with uh, Dylan a bit more here about the whole season theories for season two. And as we move forward, um, We'll definitely do a ratings episode as well where we rate the episodes. And So if you have any thoughts, opinions, or anything else you'd like to share with us, just hit us up on our socials, Twitter, or on Instagram, um, Instagram at WOT Rewind. And then uh, email, Wheel of Time, or Wheel of Time Rewind at gmail.com. Thank you. <laughs> so also, before we get out of here, I just wanted to give the payoff for what you alluded to earlier. So we were talking about how this episode is probably arguably our least favorite of the entire season so far. Um, Or not so far. It is our least favorite of the entire season. And one of the other episodes that Mike really didn't like that much was episode one. So a little interesting tidbit that connects them both is that they were both written by Rafi Judkins, the showrunner for the Wheel of Time series here. Which, that's, yeah, it's a little groan-inducing if those are are what he's got for us. But it's going to be interesting to, like, when we rate and talk about the episodes, we should look at who directed, who wrote, and see if there's a pattern with that. But I just want to end this episode by saying that, all in all, as a total series so far, I still want to watch I yep. am unhappy with some of the changes that were made, especially okay. in this last one here. But, still excited to see it Yeah, I'm still excited though. to see a representation of a mm. version of Wheel of Time on the screen here. And I just keep crossing my fingers and hoping that it keeps getting better and better because I felt like the show really reached a point where it was building up and getting better. And oh, like yeah. episode seven in particular. Um, but we'll see what happens. Hopefully more I'm, episodes next season too. Yeah, I'm hoping because they already, I think, completed or are in the middle of filming season two. So I did hear there's going to be a larger budget for season two than there was mm-hmm. for season one, which, I mean, given the success of the show, given it's the number one streaming show in the world, why wouldn't there be? So exactly. I'm really excited for season two to get here. And of course, we'll keep the great Wheel of Time content coming your guys' way and just have lots to talk about our episodes after this probably won't be as long which will probably be a benefit to everybody but (laughs) we'll we got lots of cool stuff planned including like mike said our next episode is going to be kind of ranking all of the episodes and just kind of going through it as like a whole piece to see what we thought of the series as a whole but until next time we'll see you at the next turning of the wheel goodbye See you, goat kissers.